Now, our text for tonight is uh, Ephesians 1. We're going to be looking at Paul's apostolic prayer in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. But before we go there, and before we actually read the text, I want to um, just bring us to a place of attention to this thought about the ascension. Because many of you are probably have had probably a similar experience than I have as, you know, growing up through the church and in different denominations and expressions. The ascension was a part of what we understood to be the truth of God's word, but it was never something that we really focused on very much. We focused on Easter, Good Friday, resurrection, like that's where the party was, focused on on Christmas, of course. But ascension was kind of this thing of sort of, hmm, what is that? Is that just Jesus sort of exiting stage left? Like he's done? He's finished? He said he was finished, right? He said he was finished. So does that mean he's just sort of walking off the scene, throwing us the baton? It's our time on stage? Is that what it means? Or if you're sort of thinking in terms of maybe a bit of a sports analogy, maybe like his team, his shift was done, and now he's going to go sit in the bleachers and watch us cheer us on. Is that what we think of the ascension? I think in a lot of ways, it is. Well, it's actually quite different than that. There's something way more important, way more significant, and way more glorious that's happening here in the ascension. I want to take you to a quote that I found from theologian Brandon Meeks. Um, Maybe you can put that slide up. Um, Heather's in the back there. So so this is what Brandon Meeks says. He says, the ascension of Jesus transforms the it is finished of propitiation. Propitiation is essentially just the work of the cross. So the ascension transforms the it is finished of the work of the cross into the I'm just getting started of cosmic reconciliation. Oh, are you intrigued yet? (laughs) What is the ascension about? Okay, let's read the text. Ephesians chapter 1. This is a, a prayer of Paul's for the Ephesian church. He's caught the heart of the Spirit. He's inspired by the Spirit. And so as Paul prays, he is expressing the Spirit's desire for the church. So listen to his words. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurably great power towards us who believe. According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all, 
all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is to be named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of the Lord. Paul's prayer that carries this unction of the Spirit begins with this thought that the Lord would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Jesus. Wisdom and revelation. That as we learn about Jesus, and then he goes into this extraordinary, uh, just kind of... um, overflow of the greatness of the gospel and all these different aspects of of who Jesus is and what he's done. But he begins with this thought that we would have the, the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Jesus. That there would be something there that would land in our hearts. That it wouldn't just be cognitive, rational, a kind of dry tick-the-boxes, fact-based knowledge, but that there would be something deeper going on. The next part of his prayer is he leans into this idea that the eyes of their hearts would be opened. We, too, need, because, of course, the Holy Spirit's desire for us is the same as it was for the Ephesians church. So you could hear this as almost the Lord himself sharing with us tonight his desire that the eyes of our hearts would be opened so that we could see Jesus, so that we could see him in his glory, in his love, in the greatness of his heart towards us. This is a prayer that, that they would grasp the, to the very core of their being, the full implications and the wonder of what they are seeing as they gaze at Jesus. This is a prayer that is very much a prayer for us as well. Jesus teaches us that when your eye is good, your whole body is full of light. And this is one of the reasons that it matters that the eyes of our hearts be opened. Because when our eye is good, when our eye is able to see well, then our whole body becomes affected by that revelation. Our whole life becomes touched and transformed and influenced by that revelation. And then Jesus goes on to teach, but if you don't see and don't, or you do see but don't perceive what you're seeing, if your eye is bad, then it doesn't do you much good. That that seeing is futile. I've been um, enjoying, over the last month or so, very slow digesting of a, a new book of poems that I got. I haven't read poems since I was in high school. But I discovered this guy. His name is um, Paul J. Pastor. He's a leader in uh, ACNA Church in Oregon, and he works for Random House as an editor, but he's also a poet. And so um, I want to read to you a poem tonight. 
which speaks about seeing and learning how to see and the importance of seeing. And it's called Nine Kinds of Blindness. Number one, the one where your eyes do not work to see anything. Number two, the one where your eyes do not work to see everything. Number three, the one where your eyes work, but you cannot see what you have never seen before. Number four, the one where your eyes work, but you cannot see what is inconvenient. Number five, the one where your eyes work, but someone is keeping you from using them. Number six, the one where your eyes work, but you are angry. Number seven, the one where your eyes work, but you are afraid. Number eight, the one where your eyes work, but there is no light. And number nine, the one where your eyes work, but there is nothing but light. I believe, um, I, I keep wanting to call him Pastor Paul, of course. <laughs> I believe that, that Paul has some really powerful thoughts in that poem about how important it is to be able to see. One of the hindrances to seeing, as he's identified, is that what you're looking at is so different from anything that you've seen before that you don't really have a grid for it. You don't know what to do with it. You don't know how to understand it or to how, to, how to comprehend it. And I think this is how we have looked, in many ways, at the ascension. And it was also how the first disciples looked at the ascension. Anne read that beautiful scripture from, uh, from Acts, and it, it has this, this um, narrative of the disciples looking at Jesus as he was ascending. Let me read it to you again just to refresh your memory, and I'm just going to read that one little section instead of the whole passage. This is after he had given all the charges to the disciples, Acts chapter 1, verse 9, and when he, he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and, and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who is taken up from you into heaven, will come again in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Something powerful, something new, something extraordinary is happening right here. But the disciples were being transformed from a place of confusion, I think with the help of the angels and a bit of their guidance and the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, they were being transformed from this place of astonishment and confusion to understanding. I'm imagining that in that moment, and I don't have any scripture to back this up, but these were good Jewish men who were familiar with, with the Old Testament texts. They were familiar with the Old Testament prophecies. And I am imagining that in that moment, what began to drop into their heart was the text 
of, of um, Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. We're just going to put that slide up there. That's the next one on the sequence. Let's read it, and let's envision them looking up at Jesus in this moment. And these words of Daniel ringing in their ear. This is the disciples looking heavenward, but Daniel was positioned in this dream or this vision, however it came to him, looking from heaven. So he's coming from a different angle. And this is what Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. Who's that? And he came into the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. I'm imagining that these words were ringing in the heart of those disciples, and they realized that they were seeing the ascension of the Son of Man into glory. That reality caught them. The eyes of their heart were opened, their bodies filled with light. And so let's ask the question, what was actually happening here at the Ascension? And I, I can't go into all the different ramifications because there are really so many different things that we could focus in on. But I want to give you three. And I'm tr going to try to motor through them pretty quick. <laughs> we'll see. The first is that Jesus is being exalted by God. Jesus is not lifting himself up. Jesus is being exalted by the Father. Before he began his ministry, Jesus was tempted by Satan. Satan took him to a high place but he couldn't access the highest place. He showed him the kingdoms of the world, their power and their glory, but he couldn't display the kingdoms of heaven. He offered all of this to Jesus if Jesus would only fall into idolatry and worship him, but Jesus did not fall. He did not give in to any shortcuts he did not settle for any lesser goals. He lived a perfect life. He perfectly loved. He perfectly obeyed. He did not exalt himself, although he had many opportunities. But rather, he humbled himself, and he poured out his life as a servant. The great hymn of Philippians 2 carries this same theme this same echo. And you will know this passage well. It was one of the hymns of the early church. I'm just going to read you a few verses from that. Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him 
and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you hear the same chorus coming from Daniel, coming from Ephesians, coming from Philippians, the exaltation of Christ? The Father publicly exalts and enthrones Jesus. This isn't a hidden thing. In the same way that the Father affirms Jesus at the beginning of his ministry, he exalts him before all, before all these witnesses. Jesus is not exiting stage left. He is being enthroned before their very eyes. There is a public declaration that Jesus is Lord of heaven and earth. And he is not just ascending to the throne as the king, but at the same time, he is entering into the holy of holies of heaven, the holiest place of heaven, to serve and begin his ministry forever as a sinless, perfect high priest, our mediator and our intercessor. The Father is publicly exalting Jesus to be king and priest forever, to rule and reign as Lord and King, and to, and to serve the church in this beautiful priestly ministry. That's extraordinary. We could park there and we could go deep into some of these ideas and thoughts and revelations and the impact that they have, but we're going to move on. The second thing that's happening Jesus is uniting heaven and earth in his person. Whoa. Jesus is actually connecting that which had been separated. I was thinking about an image of how when you are doing hand sewing, and some of you will understand this, Anne is with the kids, and she would be able to tell us all about it because she's extraordinary at these kinds of things. But the idea when you're sewing is that you have uh, a needle and then there's thread that runs through the loop on the needle. And at the end of the thread, you tie a knot. And you run that needle through one piece of fabric and the other and back and you cinch them together. This is very much a picture, although it's primitive and crass and not at all very spiritual sounding or glorious, but it is a picture of this knitting together this reconnecting of heaven and earth that Jesus does. Jesus holds heaven and earth together. He is fully man and fully God, and he is seated on the throne of heaven. Heaven and earth will never be separated again. Human body seated on the throne of heaven enthroned forever, uniting heaven and earth. And the union of heaven and earth, with that set in motion, Jesus is inaugurating the church age. The time when, when he's enthroned in heaven is, at, is he is being enthroned as the head of the body. This is what we read in Ephesians 
He put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. We are the members of his body. The head is in heaven. But we are here because he's been crowned with all authority. That authority flows through his body. And we have the authority now to make disciples of every nation in a way that we never had before. We're empowered by Jesus. And as he and the Father pour out the Spirit at Pentecost, that even increases all the more. His authority flows through us. He empowers us to go forth and multiply his kingdom, to make disciples, to preach this glorious good news of redemption. Heaven and earth have been united. The new creation has begun. Number three, the third thing that we want to notice from Um, Jesus' ascension, is that Jesus will come again. We heard that passage in Acts chapter 1. As the angel said, this Jesus who was taken up from you to heaven will come again in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Jesus will come again. This church age that we are living in right now will not last forever. It will end with Christ's return. Jesus' resurrection and ascension usher in not just the beginning of the church age, but the beginning of a new, the new creation. And it will all culminate with his return. He will make all things new. And God will forever dwell with man the one thing that we most deeply, deeply long for. He's coming, and he's coming. Amen. So three points on how some of the ways that the ascension uh, reveals Jesus to us, some of the things we can learn from the ascension, some of the things that are set in motion by the ascension. But let's make this practical right now, and let's consider how does the ascension change how we live? What are the impacts of these lofty, grand, glorious ideas that are, are extraordinary, but there's got to be something that sort of boots on the ground, impacts how we live. If our bodies are to be filled with light, then how is that light going to manifest? How is it going to transform how we think and how we live? First of all, we live in hope. We live with new and sure hope. If you've been watching the news this week, you've been impacted by some of the things we've prayed for tonight. You've been impacted by the the terrible destruction that we're seeing globally in different cities and in different uh, countries, war and death, all kinds of devastation. We're seeing strife and sickness, broken relationships. It's just, it's heart-wrenching. But I can tell you tonight, church, that all of this is on the clock. 
it has an expiry date. It will not last forever. And so even, it is not our permanent reality. And so even, even though we groan and we, in a sense, travail with, with longing for the kingdom of God to come fully, we can be sure that, that he is bringing the kingdom and it is continually increasing day after day. That union between heaven and earth is getting stronger and stronger day after day. And because we know this sure fact that Jesus is coming and all of these, all of the sorrow and the sickness and the weeping and the grief will be washed away, will be cleansed. Because we know that, even though we grieve and we pray and we long, we also hope we don't fall into despair. We have a light. We have a hope. The second way that it impacts us is that we now approach our king and high priest. Before Jesus had ascended, we would have to have gone to Galilee and got on a, a flight and gone through our COVID test and all those things and, and land in Galilee and fight through the crowds to have access to Jesus. Right now, everywhere we go, anywhere we go, any one of us can draw near to Jesus because he is ascended to the right hand of Father. Because Jesus is not just a sinless, uh, our sinless high priest, but the one who can sympathize with all of our weakness and our infirmity, with all of our struggles. So it's not just that he's sinless, it's also that he can sympathize, he can understand, he can identify with our struggles. And so this means that we can freely approach him. We can freely draw near to him. We can live prayerful lives, living in the reality that he loves us and has the power to act on our behalf. And so the ascension gives us access to Jesus in the place of prayer. But not only that, the ascension should enlarge our faith, right? There are no limits to what Jesus can do in and through his church. The only limits that are there are those that are under the, the leadership of his will. And so his will is revealed to us in the scriptures. But everything that's according to his will, he has all power to do. What does that mean? It means that he can do things in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our community, in our nation that we have never seen before. Nobody had ever seen an ascension before. Jesus can do things that we have never seen before. So don't let what you pray for be limited by your experience. In these days where there's so much trouble and there's so much that's going on all around us, don't 
give up. Don't lose heart. Allow your prayers to soar. Pray big prayers in the light of the ascension. Pray for his kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven, knowing that that reality is already in motion. Paul prays for this in the prayer that we've read. He prays that let the eyes of your heart be open to the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. We want to have our eyes open to see the greatness of his power. There's another thing that happens when we allow the light of the ascension to flood our hearts, where we receive that spirit of wisdom and revelation. It gives us a grace to trust the Father all the more. We can follow Jesus' example of trusting the Father. Jesus had to trust the Father through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, and his ascension. And we can follow Jesus' pattern of refusing to exalt ourselves, living lives poured out, Loving sacrificially, faithfully obeying God, even when nobody sees or understands perhaps the price that we may be paying. We can trust the Father that as he exalted his Son in this beautiful and glorious way, that he sees everything that we sacrifice. He sees everything that we lay down and lose for the sake of gaining him. He sees that all, and he is faithful to reward. The Father receives and celebrates every yes we give him. None of it is overlooked. He honors us. He brings great reward and blessing into our lives. We can trust him with that. Lastly, wonderful application. One of the most important things we can see and learn and receive from the ascension is that Jesus is more worthy of worship than we realized when the eyes of our heart become opened with greater capacity, when we receive a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, when we see him, just like Paul in this passage that we've read, our hearts become overwhelmed. We can't hold back our praise, our awe, our delight. It just pours out of us because we see him. When Luke uh, was writing about the ascension, he says these words at the end of his gospel. And when he blessed them, this is Jesus blessing the disciples, he parted from them and was carried up to heaven. And they worshipped him. 
That's the application of the ascension. It's worship. We get caught up in that same worship that the disciples entered into. It awakens in us. It stirs our hearts. It overwhelms us because we realize that Jesus descended to the earth. He took on the form of a servant. He was crucified, died, and was buried. But the Father vindicated him and raised him up in glory. We can't out-worship his worth. So in closing, I'm going to pray this prayer again over us. This prayer that the Spirit breathed through the pen of Paul. And I'm going to pray it for us rather than praying it as a preaching text, praying it as, Lord, would you do this in our lives? And so I want to invite you just to to just kind of posture yourselves to receive these words um, of of the gospel. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love towards all the saints, You could just even imagine that this is Jesus praying this over us, our great high priest, our intercessor. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is to be named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. Father, we praise you for the exaltation of your Son. We praise you that he is securely seated upon the throne of heaven. Nothing can shake that. Nothing can diminish that. Nothing can corrupt that. We thank you that he continues to be our faithful high priest and that we have access to him any moment, any time, day or night, and that he is more than ready to intervene on our behalf. He is a faithful, sinless, compassionate, high priest 
that is ever giving intercession for us. We thank you that you hold us dear. You hold us near. And you are indeed opening the eyes of our hearts to see your son and worship him in these days. Amen.